The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended for use as a diagnosis or treatment of a health problem or as a substitute for consulting a licensed medical professional. Any information obtained by participating as a podcast listener is not intended to and should not be considered to constitute medical advice. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the authors or guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of UTMB. Thank you for listening. Hello, we're back for another critical care discussion. This time we're going to be talking to Sandra Hyder. She has her MBA, her MS. She's an acute care nurse practitioner uh, for adults. She's certified as a critical care nurse, a cardiovascular nurse, and a progressive care nurse. And she works at the Cardiovascular Intensive Care Unit at Memorial Hermann. Welcome, Sandra. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, we, I was hoping today that we could talk a little bit about CVP, um, which is uh, central venous pressure. And so I know students have seen this in lecture, but can you kind of explain CVP in your own words? Just give them an idea of what you think of when you think of CVP. Sure, and I can definitely understand people having a hard time with this concept. And hemodynamics in general is pretty difficult if you don't just really sit there and study. And for me, I would have to draw it out and watch videos and just for it to make sense. So the way my mind kind of works is I come up with little scenarios or stories or, or just like little um, shortcuts to remember things. So CVP, as you said, does stand for central venous pressure. Um, but I also remember that it's reflective of the right atrium. And if we all remember our hemodynamics, we know that venous return or any blood that's used up from the body, it comes back from the veins into the right um, atrium, which um, is a reflection of our venous pressure or our volume status. So the way I think about CVP is a cup of volume because I'm parched. So using the same acronym CVP, I think of it as a cup of volume because I'm parched. So if my body is thirsty, if my body is needing more volume, then I'm going to have a low CVP. If my body is way overloaded and I have way too much volume, then my cup is going to be super, super high, overloaded or super, super full. So I'm going to have a very high number on my CVP. That's a great acronym. I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> All right. So what patients do we normally monitor CVP? When you're at work, who do you think, okay, I'm going to benefit from seeing a CVP in this patient? Um, so, of course, I'm in the cardiovascular intensive care unit. So our post-coronary artery bypass patients or cabbage patients we use this in, but also having come from a background in medical ICU, we used it in our patients that were septic or just hemodynamically unstable. Because as we just discussed, that the CVP is reflective of our volume status. So if you have a patient that's septic and you have the acute vasodilation because of the sepsis, then we have to, then we have to know when to fill the tank or when the tank is full. So if their cup is really empty, then we need to give them more volume to help get that blood pressure up because what we're trying to do is increase our preload, which is how we load up our cup of volume so that the patient has enough blood or enough volume to circulate around the body to get them out of that septic state, to kind of flush everything out, if you would. Um, so septic patients and patients that have undergone um, pretty intensive surgery, these are the type of patients that I would see a CVP being monitored because, again, we're, we're looking at that volume status and trying to identify what it is that they need to get that blood pressure or that cardiac output up. 
Okay. And so when you're thinking about, you know, is this a normal range? Is this high? Is this low? What values do you normally look at for a CVP that you kind of consider to be your normal range? Well, I know textbooks teach anywhere from two to six, but in our practice, we actually like CVPs a bit higher. We like them anywhere from about eight to 12, because again, these are acutely ill patients that require more volume status to be able to get them through this hump of, of the recovery. So we see anywhere from eight to 12. Sometimes we're even happy with patients that are in CVPs of 17, because they we understand that they need volume depending on what their um, what their condition is. We know that they need volume and helping them get through all the um, acute illness that they have is keeping them at a higher CVP so they have a much higher blood pressure, much better perfusion. But if you were to test me, I guess two to six would be our textbook answer. (laughs) We discuss this in class too, though, because um, my background is some trauma. And, you know, with trauma patients, you really want to tank them up. And so we talk about this. I mean, I've had patients and they have trauma and we want to tank them up. You want that CVP over 15. You know, you don't want them running low because if they do lose volume, they we want them to have some volume to lose, if that makes sense. And so I it, it the textbook is very challenging with this and it's challenging to teach because that number seems so rigid and, and students really sometimes fixate on that number two to six and And so when you're caring for a patient and they're, let's say somebody is, you know, you have that patient, you mentioned some patients, you want them at 17. So their CVP, let's say it's 12, which is kind of what you're saying is sort of the high range of what you say is normal. What factors go into saying, even though this patient's CVP is 12, I'm going to give more volume? Well, I think you have to also look at the whole clinical picture. So CVP is just one number. Um, usually if you have a CVP, you also have an arterial line Mm -hmm. and sometimes you'll have a swan Gantz catheter. So you'll look at everything, um, because the CVP can be high, but your output or your blood pressure is super low. So then you have to think again, back to your hemodynamics, what could be going on here? So in terms of, um, seeing when do you give more volume and you have to look at the whole picture. Is it appropriate to give this patient more volume? Say their PVP is 15, their compressors and their blood pressure is still in the toilet if you would. Um, blood pressure is still super low. You're, you're still having a titrate on your but your CVP is really high, then you start having to think, okay, what could be causing this? So if we remember back to our hemodynamics, everything is always back to that. Right atrium delivers blood to the right ventricle, delivers blood to the pulmonary system, gets oxygenated, comes back into the left atrium, left ventricle. And then left ventricle, then of course, puts your cardiac output out, the rest of the body through the aorta. So in my mind, if I see a CVP that's rising and my mm-hmm. blood pressure is still low, there's something blocking blood from getting to the right from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart to increase the cardiac output. So now I have to think, okay, is my patient going into right side of heart failure? Giving this patient more volume is backing them up. It's not reaching the left side. So maybe I need to pull back a little bit, look and see what I can do to reevaluate this patient's um, cardiac system to see what is going on and that can help this patient. That that is such a good explanation of thinking, you know, you've got to think about what's the pathology behind what's going on. And so if you, you mentioned, first I want to mention that you mentioned a Swan-Gans catheter, which is the same thing as a pulmonary artery catheter for students that, 
maybe haven't gotten that far yet or, or were wondering, um, then let's say a patient is, you know, you've got that normal range, right? And so you're looking at the A-line, you're looking at some of the other numbers, what's their history? Um, how, when you're looking at that CVP, what, how do you use that in relationship to the patient's plan of care? What things are you going to say, okay, this is going to give me, this is going to drive what I do? Sure. So again, we are looking at the A-line, our blood pressure is low. Let's, let's take heart failure out of the whole clinical picture. Mm-hmm. So say we are um, looking at the CVP. Well, first of all, let's back up and even say, okay, if our CVP is low and we're thinking that the patient is going to need more volume, let's first not treat the CVP because that is just the number. Let's look at our patient completely, mm-hmm. okay? Because we can have our CVP read low, but our patient looks great. Our blood pressure is great. Maybe the arterial line even looks wonky, but you do a cuff pressure, a non-invasive blood pressure, and that blood pressure looks great, but my CVP is still reading one or two. Well, let's backtrack a little bit, and let's make sure that we're not just treating a, a number. Mm-hmm. We see our patient is stable, and let's go back in and check our machines. Let's, let's check and make sure that our pressure bag is full. Let's make sure that our tubing is in key. Let's make sure that we have, um, we have zeroed the patient appropriately because, again, if we stay our patient up, what is our CVP going to look like? It's going to probably look super low because we're not laying flat now. We're sitting up. Yeah. Gravity comes into play and now we're looking at a CVP that's super low and given that patient that looks hemodynamically stable more volume might not be the best idea so again it's looking at the whole clinical picture looking at the whole patient and then being able to determine what we need now if we've done all that the patient doesn't look good the patient's blood pressure is still low and the CVP is low then at that point I can say okay you know what let's give them a little bit more volume and let's see how they respond And when I say volume, we're usually talking about crystalloids. We'll either use, in my practice, we use um, anything from normal saline. We use isolite sometimes, and we also use lactated ringers. So there's different types of volume that you can give. And there's also at times when we use colloid, where um, we use albumin to help out with the patient. It just depends on on the patient's status. Um, So that's how I would use CVP to kind of drive my management. Okay, and we talk about albumin some in lecture. And so if you have a patient and you're determining is crystalloid or colloids better, how do you make that determination? Um, again, it's looking at the, at the entire clinical picture. So if we are dealing with a patient that's already gotten, you know, let's say two liters, two and a half liters of crystalloid, um, let's auscultate our lungs. Let's make sure our lungs aren't suffering from this. Look at their oxygenation. Make sure we're not overloading their lungs. Um, if the lungs aren't overloaded, then maybe we can give just a little bit more crystalloid. I never go over three liters of volume because that's a bit much. We, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be giving that that much all over a short period of time because we can go into flash pulmonary edema. We don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So what do we do if our patient is getting lots of volume? Maybe they're third spacing still. Maybe it's still not. Um, our uh, blood pressure is still not coming up, then what does albumin do? Well, if we remember from our lectures, from our pharmacy lectures, albumin helps shift everything from the extracellular to the intracellular space. So maybe doing that, maybe the patient has increased permeability, they're they're leaky, maybe they're original, um, they originally came in, they're 
protein calorie deficient, even then this volume is just kind of kind of steep out from from them. Let's help shift everything back into the intracellular space to intravascular space. I'm sorry, I'm using the <laughs> incorrect terminology. Intravascular space um, to be able to get that blood pressure up. Intravascular guys, not intracellular. That's my bad. Yeah, no. I- <laughs> I, I always tell students albumin is like a bolus to yourself. It's like from yourself to yourself, if that makes sense. It's, mm-hmm. you know, going to pull. And so if we have concerns that a patient's fluid overloaded, let's say that, you know, you're talking about somebody who's gotten a fair amount of crystalloid and, and this happens and sometimes it's not, even, they can come into the hospital and be fluid overloaded. And so let's say you've got this person, they're fluid overloaded how do you use Lasix in their management, especially if they're hemodynamically unstable, blood pressure is low, you know, we know we need to get that fluid off, but we don't want to tank their blood pressure anymore. What are some strategies that we can do to help decrease that fluid overload while still making sure that we're trying to maintain a blood pressure to the best of our ability? That's a really good question. I actually had a similar scenario to this a few weeks ago. Um, right-sided heart failure, patient's um, CVP was super high, was 23, but my mm-hmm. blood pressure and my cardiac output were still super low despite being on epinephrine. So um, what we, we looked at, and then, of course, urine output. Urine output became super low. They were initially putting out more than 30 cc's an hour, and then they just kind of stopped. They were trickling down 20 and 15. And my mind immediately went to, okay, now we're in some type of acute right side or heart failure because everything's backing up from the right side, going back from the right ventricle to the right atrium, and that's reflecting on my CVP with a um, CVP number of 23. Something's not helping out with the forward flow, so that's why my cardiac output is still low and my blood pressure is still low despite being on vasopressors that are supposed to constrict and bring that blood pressure up but of Mm -hmm. course if our tank isn't full on the left side it's not going to be working so what we wanted to do um, before setting up dialysis because dialysis um, uh, CRT or, or renal replacement therapy is another option to be able to help with this but in the meantime while we're setting up for that we decided to go ahead and give some Lasix to offload that right side of the heart but again yes our blood pressure on the left side was still pretty low so what we actually did was we gave albumin, mm-hmm. um, shift everything back into the intravascular space. So that way when that LASIK pits in the renal tubules, we're actually taking out the volume that's now in the intravascular space that's not so third spaced out. So that was able to help us pull some volume off and still be able to maintain that patient's blood pressure. And he ended up doing well once we gave him, you know, the, the, that treatment. We actually did that um six hours for one uh three doses okay. and actually seems to help him um and then of course we ended up putting him on crt and that helped a lot to get some of that volume off and so let's talk about crt when we use this in somebody who's fluid overloaded because i know this is something that happens um but when you i think for a lot of students when they're ta- thinking about crt they're kind of thinking that dialysis piece where you're filtering the kidneys and so what's the purpose of using crt for these patients 
Um, there's several purposes for CRRT, so or for dialysis in general. Um, so we have um, the purpose of cleaning or, or doing what the kidneys can't do, right? Just cleaning the blood. Okay. Okay. But there's also um, there's also ways to, to get this extra volume off because again, our kidneys aren't working, so they're not able to filter out all of the volume that we usually see with you know urine output. That's a big indicator. And um, just to backtrack just a second, um, when we look at our whole clinical picture for our patient, always remember to check that urine output. I like to call the kidneys the princesses of the body because okay. they are so delicate. <laughs> they are so delicate. They cannot handle any little thing because they will start acting up. So if they just have a decrease in blood pressure, like, oh, my God, I just can't feel. My blood pressure is too low. So you know what? I'm not going to give any urine anymore. <laughs> or they get a drug they don't like. There are some things like nephrotoxic, like, oh, my God, I can't feel. This drug is, like, really ruining my day. I'm just not going to put in out any more urine output. So they're just so picky, those little princesses down there, and they just act up. So that's the way I like to think about them. Um, so going back, so if the kidneys <laughs> aren't working, we need to help them out. So if they're not filtering, if they're not um, being able to clear any, like, lactic acid or um, pick off volume, then we have to help them out. So these, those are uh, a few reasons that we would give it. Um, and actually, um, this is going to be a little bit over the adult three head, but I'm just going to make you guys a little bit more smarter. Um, so there's an acronym that we use to, to kind of gauge when we give dialysis. It's um, A-E-I-O-U. So we do dialysis for patients who are in acidosis, if they have the A. If they have electrolyte imbalances, that's the E. The I is for any toxins or in, intoxications or any type of drugs that can affect the kidneys. Um, o is for overload from fluid, volume overload. And then U is for uremia or any, or any symptoms of uh, uremic um, accumulation. Um, so when we look at the O, the overload, we can hook them up. We help filter the toxins from the body, and we can also pull fluid. Um, the way we do the CRT in our patients is they're usually on a vasopressor because the blood pressure can't handle the, the shift in the fluid. So we'll use a vasopressor to keep the blood pressure up, and then we pull as much as we can throughout that one hour, two hours. So we'll start with maybe pulling 50 cc's in the one hour. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the next time the blood pressure can handle, we can pull 100 cc's. So it's just, it's a really big balance. And I, I tip my hats off to our critical care nurses that have to sit there and calculate what's going into the patient, how much to pull out, and being able to have that full um, just picture for them to be able to make those decisions on how much they can and can't pull from those machines. I think that's such a Does fun that part. Question? I hope that yes, is. <laughs> but I was going to say, I think that CRT is such a fun part of critical thinking because there's so much autonomy with it. And there's, I mean, that's part of why we're critical care nurses, if that makes sense. And Absolutely. So. I love it. You actually have to put everything together. That's the best mm -hmm. part of my excuse me, best part about critical care is you really have to think. You're like, okay, my blood pressure is low. Now my kidneys are going to be affected. And, oh, what about my liver? My liver is going to be affected. And mm -hmm. if my liver is affected, oh, here go my coagulation factors. You know, just so much that you have to just think through. And I love it. There is. You have to look at that big picture and then kind of come in and look at the small picture, look at the big picture. It's just, it's, critical thinking is a fun challenge. And I, I use fun lightly because I know that it's life or death for some people, but it's a challenge that is rewarding. 
All right. So you mentioned Absolutely. these patients being on vasopressors. And so if you're looking at a patient and they're hemodynamically unstable, are there times when inotropes would be better than a vasopressor for your patient? Um, so, yes, so we look at the condition, right? So what are we dealing with? Is it just a septic-type picture where we have to help the patient clamp down to get that blood pressure up? Then we'll be using vasopressors. And then even before we go there, let's, let's talk about our receptors. We really need to make sure we know what our receptors do. So we have our beta-1 receptor for the heart. I always teach it as beta-1, one heart, beta-2, we have two lungs. So that's mm -hmm. essentially where we, it affects. And then you have your alpha receptors that affect your con either your constriction of the vessels or your relaxation of the vessels. So um, you, you got to think about that when you know what you're going to pick and how the medicines work when you know what you're going to pick. So, again, going back to aseptic patients, they're very vasodilated. We want to clamp them down. They'll get tank them, you know, fill up the tank before you clamp them down to get that blood pressure up. So mm -hmm. then vasopressors would be appropriate for that patient. Now, if my patient's into some heart failure that we need to help them with the squeeze and to get that cardiac output up, then we start looking at different medications. So mm -hmm. we use milrinone and we use dibutamine at, at my facility, more so milrinone over dibutamine. And if we really go back to, like, think about our pharmacology, it's so important. I know that class is horrible. I hated it myself when I was in school, <laughs> even more so when I was at the um, advanced practice level because you have to know so much more of it. And, again, it just takes studying and drawing stuff out, watching YouTube videos or whatever it takes to get it stuck in your head. But known for one, let's just talk about that for a second. It's a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. So what does that mean? We always hear that, but we don't know exactly what it means. Well, it's actually a, um, it, it prevents the breakdown of, um, I'm going to take you all the way back to like biology or whatever, but the cyclic, um, it, um, I always get the words confused. So cyclic adenosine monophosphate breakdown. So what happens when that breaks down? Well, it actually uses up a lot of the calcium when that breaks down and you don't have that available for your tissues. So when you put milrinone in or phosphodiesterase inhibitor, what it does, it prevents that breakdown. So now you have more calcium availability to help out with the uh, myocytes or the, or the uh, cells in, in the ventricles to help squeeze. So now you can improve your squeeze. It also prevents the breakdown of the guanosophase, uh, sorry, cyclic, I always have a confusion with that word, guanosine, cyclic guanosine monophosphate, okay? Um, or we, we can call it the CGMP. And what that does is actually prevents the metabolism of that, and it leads to vasodilation in both your arteries and veins. So now you have a decrease in your systemic vascular resistance, so now everything's kind of relaxing down. So when you have that squeeze kicking, because we blocked that CAMP mm -hmm. um, action, you have a better squeeze now. And then when that left ventricle squeeze squeezes, you don't have all that systemic vascular resistance from the aorta. So your aorta is now more calm, more relaxed, and it's able to take in all that extra volume that you're trying to shoot out to the body. And when a patient's in heart failure, they definitely need help with that vasodilation. They also need help with the um, ventricles to relax and also be able to constrict effectively. So in that type of patient, you want to go ahead and use a phosphodiesterase inhibitor like, like um, milrinone is. 
Um, but on the flip side, you also have to be careful because, of course, when we cause vasodilation, we can also lower our blood pressure. Yeah. Um, when when our patients have dropped our blood pressure, we've used um, epinephrine, which we all know is a, is a vasopressor as well. It's a very um, strong beta-1 mm-hmm. agonist, so it's going to bring up your um, heart rate a little bit and also cause some vasoconstriction when it hits those alpha receptors. Um, so that helps keep your blood pressure up with that. I'm not so much to the point where it's like counteracting the milrinone effect that we want it to relax, but it's enough to be able to keep the blood pressure up. And again, it's a it's a big balance um, in critical care and being able to know if it's if this is a good idea for the patient or do we just need to maybe try something different, maybe take them back to OR if it's a vessel that's not um, perfusing very well. Maybe their graft has gone down and that's why you're in right side of heart failure or, you know, what else is going on if this isn't working. Yeah. And sometimes you probably have patients where you use inotropes and vasopressors. I'm sorry, I missed the question. Oh, sorry. Sometimes you probably have some patients where you have to use inotropes and vasopressors. Oh, yes, most definitely, especially when they're fresh post-op. Um, sometimes they'll need that help from the uh, milrinone and then also still need the help um, for the left side um, with that epinephrine, definitely. And for the students, I want you to know that I'm not going to ask you to decide when do you need to use an inotrope and a vasopressor together. You need to have an idea of when to use an inotrope versus a vasopressor. But know that in practice, it's fairly common to see them together. So when you're in clinicals, are there things that you find that students really struggle with CVP that you just wish you had a time to kind of say, hey, this is CVP or hemodynamics, something that you'd want a a learning point or kind of a nursing pearl for them? Um, Absolutely. So what I would really like for all the students before you get into adult three in any ICU is I would love for the students to be able to go back um, and remember and read how the circulation or circulatory system works draw it out, do it forwards, and then be able to do it backwards. So we all know that it comes from the, the blood comes from the venous system, right atrium like we just discussed earlier, right ventricle, out to the pulmonary um, artery, gets perfused, comes back from the pulmonary veins into the left atrium, left ventricle, and then out to the aorta. So know that forwards completely, know how that works. Now go ahead and start drawing it backwards test yourself and, and, you know, kind of challenge yourself to be able to speak to that backwards. Because when we start having heart failure on the left side, or if you hear somebody that has pulmonary hypertension, then I want you to understand what that means. And if you see some of these things in practice, say a high CVP, low blood pressure, you can think back to your hemodynamics and say, hey, I know how this works or supposed to work and something's going on. If my CVP is super high, something's going on with my right side. My blood pressure is super low. Something's going on with the left side. And just having a good understanding of that circulatory system, I think it just makes everything so much easier when we start talking about hemodynamic instability and looking at these numbers like your CVP and your um, SDR and cardiac output and all that stuff. Okay. Well, thank you for all the information that you've given us, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. This has been extremely informative. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to seeing all of our future nurses rocking the ICU. Me too.